Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's Dave Tuttle and the Astros' master of banter, Blummer. <laughs> oh, guess what? I'm tingly because the podcast is starting and the bleachers are open. How is everybody doing? I hope that this week has treated everybody well. I'm going to make a minor adjustment to my camera so you can get my entire loaf in there. Yes, if you've been following on Instagram. You know that there might be a couple of chunks taken out of there. My wife got to do my hair. We got some clippers. And uh, we just pretty much shaved it, went straight down to about a two guard on the sides and left a little, turns into like a little bit of a faux hawk when I get out there. But uh, that is the position I'm in right now in the quarantine. But on the other hand, looking at you, Tuttle, my gosh, you know, we, we have plenty of phone calls and texts throughout the course of the week. But when you get on camera, my God, dude, you have gone grizzly Adams on us, bro. What is going on? Yeah, that's the age, I think, too. Look at all this gray. But, you know, I, I actually did shave once during the quarantine, but um, I decided about, I don't know, 10 days in. Oh, we're also at, in case you guys are wondering, day 39 of the quarantine. Uh, about 10 days in, I shaved. So doing the math, 39 minus 10 puts me at about 29 days of no shaving. And, uh, yeah, use your fingers. You got to use all the fingers and toes. 29 up. Oh, I'm a little short. Uh, 29 days of uh, no haircut and no shave. So you and I go going opposite. You're going as short as you can go with a, an inexperienced hairdresser. And I'm going like, hey, forget it. No haircut, no anything until we get out of this. Yeah, for those on the podcast uh, listening, I, I don't know if you remember last podcast I was talking about. My beard comes in in spots, and I think there's about – about three centimeters in between each hair that comes on my face. So it's, it's not even connected. It doesn't grow together. It's pathetic. So it's kind of spotty all over the place. Tuttle right now has got a solid beard going that uh, looks pretty legit. Like if you actually did put out the effort, that's what it should look like. And that's why I've shaved. <laughs> and my girls, you know, if they come by and hug me and kiss me goodnight, they're like, oh, dad, your face. You know, they can't handle it. So I think it's yeah. another repercussion of being in a in a swimming in the swimming upstream in the estrogen estrogen river that I'm in for the last 39 days apparently in this quarantine have created a little bit of issue uh I want to ask you about your family man how, how are the kids holding up how's your wife holding up uh, are things going all right inside the Tuttle household yeah going really well I uh I mean as well as can be expected it's funny you brought up the estrogen stream I, I grow uh facial hair is funny I saw I know it sounds like Ms. Mrs. Blum does not like the facial hair either. So no. regardless of what your daughters think, Mrs. Blum's like, look, maybe if it yeah, came in honest, like Grizzly Adams, really it's what counts. She's like, oh, are you going to shave? And it's like, if so I have this middle stage and I said, look, I'm not going to shave. I, I, I like being clean shaven most of the time. But um, there is that point like in the first four or five days where you scare everybody away give the girls a kiss good night and they're like ow 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 and uh and after it gets past that stage where it's a little bit longer and a little uh bushier then it's a little you know softer to the touch and softer to the the good night kiss on the cheek and uh and they're a little bit happier but you know what are we going to do we got to do something different during the quarantine we got to change it up this is like borrowing somebody else's bat or you know going up there with no batting gloves or you know i don't know it's it's one of those superstitions you know it's just kind of 
it's just kind of the thing to do right now. And we're, uh, we're all looking for a way to stay sane. So, so in regards to the family, the, uh, the family's doing well. I'm, I'm really impressed with, uh, my girls are 10. So I'm really impressed with the independence that they're showing. Um, mm-hmm. and the fact that, uh, I'm also realizing that there's probably only about two or three hours of full schoolwork from end to end. You realize with you build in <laughs> lunch and two recesses, and like a hike around the school and I'm like you know it comes up noon and it's like you guys don't need more homework like no we finished all our schoolwork and I'm like oh god you know they're gone for six or eight hours (laughs) what in god's name happened they only have about two and a half three hours but really impressed with the way they're handling it um I think we've kind of been a little more lax on and rightfully so but a little more lax on like they get a little more device time than they normally would or a little more free time than they normally would but uh yeah, but we're, you know, it's time to kind of, as you and I talked about off air, it's time to kind of figure out how we're going to come out of this now. Yeah, that is true. And that's what's crazy about, uh, you know, you're doing your workouts in your backyard, you're being creative in that sense, because I mean, you're, you're a little more intense than I am with the CrossFit. I, you know, I can take a walk around the lake out here and do, you know, I did what I'm trying to do like 30 to 50 burpees a day. That's about it. That's the extent of my CrossFitting. So uh, it works for me, but you're a little more intense in the backyard re- with your workouts. And I was kind of joking with my wife when, uh, you know, I was coloring her hair. So she, you know, she reaches out to her hairstylist, gets the hair color mix or whatever it is that she needed for her hair. And she's mixing it in the bowl and she goes, okay, now you need to put it here. And I'm going, oh my gosh, dude. I mean, is there any more stressful job in life than coloring your wife's hair? Probably her cutting my hair. Here we go. Hi, hairstylist. This is my turn. We already got Corey out of the way. Well, we're going three guard to begin with. We're just testing the waters. <clears throat> and you know what's crazy about the quarantine? Because now that I've been a plumber, an electrician, um, what else have I done? You're a hairstylist. And then I colored hair. A colorist. The, yeah. They pay, it pays better. Um, by the end of this whole thing, we are all going to be so unbelievably independent. I'm not going to need anyone. Right? Just kidding. I will always need Cecilia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. But, uh, you know, then we turn it around and it goes great and she cuts my hair and I'm going, wow. You start to think about how independent you're actually becoming because I've thought about since that day 39 started, you know, my daughter, one of my daughters, one of my triplets had finger surgery. She had 17 stitches in her finger. And I mean, literally it was going in this like horseshoe around her middle finger and there were 17 stitches holding it together. And we can't go to the doctor for the checkup. We can't go to the doctor for the, the taking out of the stitches. So guess what? I threw on, I threw on the readers. You know, I sterilized uh, the tweezers and got in there and started to clip the, you know, the stitches out. So I think I qualify maybe as a part-time doctor. Um, I fixed the garbage disposal. Um, I've done a couple of uh, electric electrician type things. Uh, electrician type oh, you know things. You can't even <laughs> well, a I've changed of light switches. type things. I don't know what that means. Does that mean change a light bulb or does that mean actually take the plate off of the <laughs> Yeah, dude. You know, I've changed I changed the light switches out, you know, the dimmer, I put the dimmer on, and then I go out and uh I dug a, a hole about 16, 17 inches deep, and then I put in a flagpole. Corey, I, Corey wasn't too excited about that. It's kind of gaudy. But I don't know if you've seen it on my Instagram, but this pole can actually uh, retract and and stretch out to about 20 feet high. I can't wait to get that thing going. 
Um, but it's amazing how independent you all of a sudden become because you are doing these things at home and you're not, you know, I'm not going to call a plumber and go, Hey dude, can you come on inside the house and fix this thing? So it's kind of interesting. Have you done anything outlandish or become your own handyman? I hope my wife doesn't listen to this because she thinks I'm one of the least handy guys around. I do. Oh, my wife's like, the same way with me, man. Uh, okay. Well, I, I do. I just do like it. You're, yeah. No, I, that's good. I need to get better at that. The old Nike motto, just do it. I've actually replaced um, fixtures, sink fixtures. Nice. Recently, that's it. Just shut off the water. Take that out. You got to get a little plumber's putty. Um, I've done some electrical stuff. Uh, we clean the garage. Um, I don't quite have as much free time as you at, currently because during the week, I'm actually busy working. I actually wish. No, no, no. And I don't mean that disrespect. I mean, I, I, I wish I had more you. time. No, but I mean, I wish like on a Tuesday afternoon, I could like go, all right, today I'm going to do what you did. I'm going to, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. I think what you, you should be commended for dyeing your wife's hair because that, <laughs> I mean, we're going to go back to the beginning. That could only go wrong. That cannot go right. You know, if you make, this is, oh, yeah. it's my same analogy with that guy told me uh, when I was in, was it Big League Camp? No, no, no. In AAA, playing another uh, National League team, um, or no, an American League team, the pitchers, you know, kind of sitting around. I went to pitch run, and this guy that was playing uh, first base for the A's, I'm leading off, and he's like, oh, you're a pitcher, aren't you? And I go, yeah. He goes, oh, my grandfather played in the big leagues. He's like, he said there is no benefit to pinch running. He goes, if you do it right, nobody notices you're on the field. If you screw up, everybody in the stadium knows. <laughs> and I'm like, that's exactly what dyeing your wife's hair is like. It's like, Blummer, you know, if you get Corey's hair right, then, you know, just another notch in your feather. And she's like, Hey, I look, you know, as great as I always do. If you screw that thing up, man, you would never live in that thing. Oh man. Yeah, no, you're right. Cause that's all yeah. I can think about too, is something doing something that I've literally never done before. <laughs> and what's funny too, is a lot of Astro fans will remember this. A lot of fans who watched me over my career is I've had several different shades of color go in my hair and Corey was always the one to do it. So now all of a sudden the tables are flipped where she's just throwing colors in my hair and I'm like, whatever, you know, but now it's like, no, this, this counts. This, this is for the big, the big kahuna right here. I gotta fit. I gotta make sure this is right because you're, you're so true in the sense that if I don't get this right, it's going to be more noticeable than if I do get it right. If I get it right, everybody's just going to be like, oh, wow, you look great. If I get it wrong, oh, man, all of a sudden I'm in the doghouse. She's got to order more coloring. And then who knows, maybe we ship somebody in to do a better job than I did. But luckily I got, got away with it. And uh, thankful for uh, St. Arnold beers because I get to drink beers after I do something stressful like that, which is pretty relaxing. And uh, I'm hoping to try and coordinate a couple of things with them over the next couple of weeks where we can try and moderately interact with some fans. I think what I'm going to try and do in talking with them is uh, deliver their to-go food. I don't know how else to get to fans, which is maybe less virtual than we're doing right now. But uh, I think what I'm going to try and do is infiltrate their delivery process at uh, the brewery. When people order online at starnold.com and order that pizza and that six-pack, Hopefully I can be the one that's all geared up, masked out, gloves, and handed over and tell everybody how much I miss them. But uh, we appreciate St. Arnold being a sponsor on this podcast. They've done a great job. Also saw some stuff on social media today with Ram Shirts doing a great job at CrushCityTees.com. Just Geek at Solutions has been doing a phenomenal job with us, uh, integrating our website and making it phenomenal so that everybody can get online get to the archives, watch this podcast, listen to this podcast. Uh, we've got all kinds of swag in combination with Ram shirts and uh, just geek at solutions. And then of course, 
the most important part of our website actually has been that mailbag where fans actually do get to interact. And I think that's where David Tuttle is going to step in right here because he is in control. And we're going to take a couple of those mailbag questions since we denied some of those last week when we got into that podcast. But right now, I think we're going to enjoy some mailbag questions from the fans at home. We miss them. We certainly do. And uh, Blummer, thanks for throwing that over. I will say uh, we need a St. Arnold's out here in, uh, in SoCal. I, I posted that last night and uh, I finally have moved into the, uh, what, what century are we in? Are we in the 21st century? I guess we are. I finally moved in the 21st century and got a, uh, an Instagram reposting app. So now I'm actually able yes. to share some of the things that you've been putting out. And uh, I got a, a, a really positive response. Um, and I think to your point, I think the, uh, the fact that you're willing to go out and uh, deliver pizzas and beer shows the kind of guy you are. And uh, I wish one of these days that uh, you'll be able to deliver some pizza and beer from the St. Arnold's Brewery right to me. And uh, it sounds like yeah. the opposite may be true. I might have to come visit you guys and, uh, and we'll do the podcast from there one of these days. Yeah, we definitely could do that. I have no problem with that. Uh, and that was probably the whole goal before this whole season started. We, we were getting excited about this. St. Arnold jumped on the podcast for advertising. And I said, this is going to work out perfect because one of the first road trips for the Astros was going to be in Anaheim. And that would be right in your backyard. And I'd be able to, uh, you know, obviously carry a little bit more on our private charters than I would on a commercial flight and uh, maybe bring you a six back or three. But Yeah, or three. We'll have that to wait. Be- yeah, well, I'm sure you, I'm sure you found a way to uh, hold on to those or, or uh, imbibe those without me uh, needing to intervene. It's been a lot of taste um, testing on my part for you, so I'll make sure you get the right mix when it gets out there. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, please do that. <laughs> and to the mailbag, it's funny. Our first question now, people, you do not need to have an, in, uh, uh, an inner uh, knowledge of Blummer and myself to uh, get into the mailbag, but this is actually from the Ram Shirts guy, Mark. And Mark R. writes in, it's a valid question. Uh, Growing up watching baseball as a kid, I've always seen no pepper games on the backstop of major league stadiums. What is it did you all ever play? Mark from CrushCityTees.com and a plug for him too. Thank you for the question, Mark. Well played. Ooh, thank you for the question, Mark. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, do you want to take that? Um, I can. I know that you probably have a little bit on it too, but Pepper is usually a game with about five. I mean, I've played, you know, with at least, you know, games of 10 guys where one guy is a hitter and then you have nine guys lined up, you know, what is it, parallel across from them, maybe 15, 20 feet away um, or a little bit further. But basically what the, you know, that line of guys have their gloves on and there's one baseball and you stand away from the hitter and basically just toss the ball in around this in the vicinity of him to be able to get the bat on the ball. And his job is to just hit the ball back to each guy. And if you're good enough at pepper, what happens is you start from left to right and you hit a one hopper. What you're trying to do is just hit a one hop ground ball to each guy as you go down the line. If you skip a guy or miss a guy, you lose your turn, you take a glove and you switch spots with the guy who got you out, quote unquote, but And if you hit a line drive and whoever catches it or you pop it up and whoever catches it, they get to hit. So it's kind of this routine where you're, you're diving over guys, you're pushing them out of the way, it gets a little aggressive, it chews up the grass. I think that's why at stadiums it says no pepper or against the netting sometimes. You know, you, it messes up the netting if guys are throwing against it. 
but I think more or less it's the guys in their spikes jumping and diving around and having a good time. But it's always, Pepper was always a lot of fun because we would usually play it down the, down the outfield lines before games. And it was just really good for eye hand coordination. Uh, it was a lot of fun to just talk some trash, move around a little bit, stay engaged in the game and kill some time. But uh, we had some epic battles and a lot of fun, but no, you know, it's like the NFL, man. It's no fun league when you're having fun. You got to take it away. Yeah, so uh, we, we obviously played Pepper. Pitchers would play Pepper all the time. My, my uh, for the layperson, the description for me is like a hacky sack circle. Anybody played hacky sack? Yeah. Like in high school, you just get around, you kick the, you know, the hacky sack up and down and try and, um, you know, keep it in the air. I mean, Pepper, from a standpoint, like you already pointed out, eye-hand coordination, I think the whole reason they have those signs up, which is kind of a more direct answer, I guess, to the question, the whole reason they have the signs up for uh, – for the stadiums is exactly that there's it's right after BP. Uh, if five or six guys are there for an extended period of time, they kill the grass or, you know, like I said, there's too much interaction over there by the netting and the fans. So they just prefer the Eagle play it down the line. And I don't think anybody has any trouble you playing pepper. It's just, you're not supposed to do it near the backstop or, uh, you know, where the, uh, the TV camera is going to sit on the grass there. So yeah. Anyway, and it can get dangerous it's a fun too, game. man. Yeah. You, you, how about you have that one guy that's been kind of bugging you throughout the, like maybe the week or so, and you just all of a sudden maybe just put a little extra, you know, wrist action in there and hit a nice little laser off the chest, off the sternum. Oh, oh my yeah. bad. My bad. Yeah. No, there's, it definitely, we had some uh, pretty heated pepper games and, you know, guys would get into it. And usually, especially from the pitcher's perspective, we would claim, you know, no back control, right? Like I didn't know yeah. how hard I was going to hit it. I'm just going to smash it at you. Whoops. Yeah. All right, Mark, thanks for the question. So the next question, Blum, are you ready? Yeah. All right, it's from Richard A. This would have been more appropriate last week, and it was probably already in, but uh, I thought we'd, we'd follow through with it. So Richard says, I just finished reading an article on who already has qualified for the Masters and what the field is in November. I was contemplating who in the field has not previously won the Masters. I would most like to see win. At the moment, my phone dinged with a Twitter notification for a Blummer tweet, which led to this. Blummer, as someone who loves golf as I do, I know you attend the tourney. Who among the field would you most like to see as a first-time Masters champion? My choice would be Matt Kuchar, great guy, usually in the hunt, etc. Ooh, that's nice. But that's a good one, and I wish I had a list of golfers out there because there's so many guys that I do enjoy. I think Justin yeah. Thomas, Justin uh, – uh, gosh, who's uh, – why am I missing Dustin Johnson? Sorry, Dustin Johnson, Justin right. Thomas. Those are two guys that I think are really good. Um, but the, I'm going to go off the grid a little bit because I don't even know if this guy's qualified for the Masters this season. But there's a guy that I love watching play, and uh, when he's on, he's money. When he's not, it gets a little sketchy. But Brant, Brant Snedeker, mm. I'm not sure if that name rings a bell with a lot of people, but I just love the way that he plays. He plays so fast. He plays aggressively. Uh, but when he is dialed in, he's ready to go. But those would be my top three. I want to see Dustin Johnson go out there and win it, but I just don't know if he has the short game or the putting ability to go out there and do it on the greens that the Masters do. And then uh, Justin Thomas is another guy that uh, um, uh, I love watching play because I think he's a little more traditional. He's not the, uh, you know, the flashy Jordan Spieth. He's not the, you know, ball-crushing Brooks Kepka. Uh, you know, he's one of those more consistent guys out there that I think needs to put like a Justin Rose or somebody like that. Like he's got similar game to him where he could just play consistent golf and get it done. 
But how about Ricky Fowler? Are you shocked? I mean, the guy that really shocks me that hasn't won a major is Ricky Fowler for me. I mean, uber talented and, and has every part of the game. I think he putts extremely well, but just hasn't put it together. So I may expand my list to those four. Snedeker, Fowler, Thomas, and Johnson. Those are the four guys that I would love to see go out there and win it, win the Masters. Well, it's a good thing the question was for you. I haven't been out to the Masters. Ricky Fowler is my choice. He jumped on that. I like Ricky Fowler. I think he's a fan favorite. I think he has a good game. He's still young. He's still learning. Justin Thomas um, is another good choice in that he's kind of more of an all-around player. He had, you know, two or three years ago, player of the year. He was just – he won yeah, like the well first, four, yeah. first four tournaments of the year or something crazy. Um, Rory McIlroy hasn't Ooh. won it either. And he's a young guy. And – I think because he won the PGA and I think he's had some success. I remember he was in the hunt one year and then fell apart. I think to your point about Dustin Johnson, this is really, I mean, this shows how mental uh, golf is. And I've followed yeah. some of your stuff with Scott house golf and stuff. And you keep talking about like, Dude. I mean, we, you know, we've played athletics at the highest level. We understand this. You've been working at your game a little bit. And I think it's amazing that, you know, Roy McIlroy and Dustin Johnson, they smashed the ball. But this mm -hmm. is where it's kind of like you faced pitchers that throw 100, but they don't know where it's going. And you see those guys get hit because they're all over the place. And then when they have to, you know, dial one in their guys are ready or they walk too many guys and the stuff kind of gets ahead of them. I feel like that's the same thing that's happened with Rory and Dustin to this point is that that day, that Sunday with like a two stroke lead or just two strokes off the lead is probably one of the most mentally challenging and mentally tough kind of situations and you know how do you handle that and we know you know good judgment comes from experience experience comes from bad judgment you kind of you need to be there and I think that's what has set Tiger and Phil and those guys apart is that they've been there so many times they have the confidence they're uber confident but they've also succeeded when you know when there was when it looked like there was no hope and I think that that is the one kind of hurdle that any of those guys that are going to win for the first time uh, would need to to um, to uh, cross. You know, I I think the thing that I love is every year Fred Couples like Saturday night. He's kind of like five under Just and the leader's like eight under, and you're like Fred Couples is in that on that first sheet. And I'm always thinking, man, if he could win it at age sixty or oh, you know fifty eight, that would be incredible. So he's kind of always my favorite. I think he's won before. That's why he's there every year. So yep. um, he would not be a first time winner, but it'd be kind of cool to see you know, one of those old relics kind of stay in the hunt on a Sunday. So anyway. And I feel like the Masters kind of lends itself to that opportunity. Obviously, you've got to be long, but I think the way as undulating as that course is and how you have to really manipulate your way around the course, that I think it lends itself to the opportunity, you know, for guys like that, uh, you know, Freddie Couples, just to kind of lay back, make his shots. And if he's dialed in and he's hitting his targets where he wants to, you can actually score at the Masters that way. You know, if he can one putt, you know, if he can get it within 10 feet of the pin, he's usually very good around putting on those greens. So, uh, but I think that's why the Masters is so much fun too, because there's so much uncertainty. And then you do get those dark horses that kind of flash out to the beginning. You know, like what was it? It was a couple of years ago or last year, Charlie Hoffman was all of a sudden like, you know, six strokes out in front after, uh, you know, the first two rounds and then obviously disappeared. But I think it lends itself to that opportunity for those guys to go out there because it does, you do have to play the mental side and you do have to overcome some of the obstacles that you do put yourself in playing that course, man. It's, it is tough. Yeah. 
I mean, you, you've seen it year after year and we know it's tough. And, and, you know, like most of this stuff, drive for show, putt for dough. I mean, when it comes down to it, those, you know, late Saturday and Sunday rounds, it's about, you know, making those 12 footers on those, uh, those like 19 on the stint meter greens. I mean, it's not yeah. going to And you get up easy. there, your hand is just like shaking like a leaf. Okay. Keep it steady. Yeah. Keep it steady. <laughs> and there's a little breeze and, you know, I mean, the whole thing goes crazy. All right, I got two more mailbag questions. Uh, we didn't want to spend too long on this. And as we said last podcast, you know, maybe if we continue to get the the dearth of questions that we're getting, that we'll make just a, uh, a special Bleacher Blums edition of the mailbag. This one shouldn't take too long, Blummer, and I, I don't know the answer uh, to this either. So I'm curious to hear if you've heard any rumblings of this. But no pressure. This is no from pressure. Colin. Yeah, Colin S. He's written in before. Colin, hello, Blummer and Tuttle. I was listening to Buster Olney's interview with Buck Showalter earlier today, and Showalter mentioned there should be a penalty for players who tell their manager to challenge a call and are wrong. Uh, have you heard of a case where a manager took a player to kangaroo court for this offense, or is it kangaroo court limited to player <laughs> crimes? Player on player crimes is what he says, which is, it's a great question. And before you answer, I just want to say, we talked about this on an earlier podcast about in the NFL. Like every time that guy gets up and he's like, you know, I caught it. I caught it. And we're like, well, you know, you didn't catch it. Like, you know, you didn't catch it. You can't go to your coach, make him throw the flag. You should be penalized. So anyway, I love the question. I like how, how he's thinking. And I'm curious to know if you've heard of anything like that in the uh, Astros clubhouse or around baseball. I, I love it. I think it's hilarious too, that, uh, uh you know, Buck Showalter, <laughs> Is so worried about himself and his replay skills. He's like, I don't need them telling me what to do kind of thing, you know. But at the same time, it kind of lends itself to some pretty funny situations. And the first one is in kangaroo court. I know we covered it a couple of podcasts ago explaining what kangaroo court was. And more often than not, it is just the players in this kangaroo court session. Now, coaches, if they do get written up, you've got to call the coaches in. You've got to call the manager in. You may, you know, it's kind of ceremonious, and you make a big spectacle out of the whole situation, bringing them out of the office, going, oh, you got written up, and you, and you bring them in. So there, there is the possibility of having them written up in kangaroo court. Now, the funny thing is, and I think the reason this question is so funny is because there has been a situation over the last two or three years when the replay uh, reviews have been instituted. Alex Bregman is 0 for 50. He has <laughs> never gotten one right. And he's the guy who slides into second base and looks back at, you know, A.J. Hinch, who was the manager at the time, and starts pointing at him like, you got to check that. Check the video. I was in there. I was in there. And A.J. Hinch, they'll check it. They'll look at it. It's kind of questionable. And A.J. has said as much as, you know, Alex really felt he was safe. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review it because, you know, it's kind of questionable, but, you know, Alex feels pretty strongly about it. And they go to it, and it's never overturned, ever. He is literally 0 for 50. So I think that's kind of where that question kind of jumps up and where it would be kind of entertaining to be, you know, I, th I think it would be a lot of fun if internally maybe the manager could say, okay, we're going to challenge this. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, <laughs> it doesn't get overturned, and he just holds up a $50 bill like – or holds up a, you know, like a paddle with a money sign on it and says, yeah, that's yeah. 50 bucks, cha-ching, you know, <laughs> Put it, or uh, maybe a sign that says, put it in the pot, you know, <laughs> towards the end of the year. But, That'd be uh, great. Yeah. That would be funny. I think that's going to happen more internally. I don't think that's something the league would be able to implement 
But uh, it would be a lot of fun. I think that needs to go on. You know, we talked about in kangaroo court, there's certain rules like you can't cuss in court. Guys cuss anyways because it raises money for the team party at the end, end of the year. Why not have another stipulation in there that says if you're adamant about having a replay reviewed and it doesn't get overturned, you've got to put 50 bucks in the pot. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I love the sign, put it in the pot. That would be so great. Just hold it up, put it yeah. in the pot or, you know, cha-ching, something like that. I mean, yeah. just something that's so have funny. Fun because it, I, man. Yeah, those guys have to know. Those guys have to know. We all knew. Like, you know, That's you knew when know. you swung. Yeah, you swung and you didn't. You get mad at the umpire. Like, he rang you up and you're like, and you go back to oh. the replay and you totally swung, right? Check swing. How about this? This was a while ago in uh, in uh, in Chicago. And Jimmy Williams was a manager. So, it was 2002, 2003. And uh, the bases were loaded. I had two strikes on me. It was like a 2-2 count. And... Uh, and uh, Kerry Woods pitching. And he, he had one of those silly, crazy 20 strikeout sliders going that day. And I'm trying, I'm up there fending for my life. You know, we're down by one. And I'm like, oh my God, please just make contact, force the ball and play. He throws one down and in. And I kind of check my swing and swing over the top, but it looks like I swung and the ball went to the backstop. And I didn't run to first. You know, it was like two outs. So there was an opportunity where you could advance a little bit and guys were running across the plate and our guys are getting fired up. And I didn't run to first. And I kind of stood there and the umpire puts his hands up and calls like timeout and then rings me up for strike three. And Jimmy Williams comes flying out of the dugout, man. And he's like, you son of a good man. He starts airing out the umpire because he's like, we should be scoring runs. Blummer's going to be safe at first. How do you call that ball dead? And I'm like, Jimmy, I go, just go back to the dugout, man. And he looks at me and he's like, just befuddled. He's like, why in God's name would I do that? I'm arguing for our team to score some runs. I go, Jimmy, just go back to the dugout, man. I go, I can't handle this right now. And he looks at me and he goes, what's wrong with you? That ball went to the, I'm like, Jimmy, ball hit me, man. <laughs> The ball broke so much yeah. that I swung at it and it hit my right. back foot and that's why yeah. the ball was dead. Yeah. And I was like, Jim, Jimmy, man, just go to, just yeah. take it back to the, I don't want to, I don't need any more attention than I got right now. Cause this is thoroughly embarrassing. And that is the only time in my career that I swung at a ball, missed it and it actually hit me. So that was a, a rather embarrassing story that I'm glad there was no replay review. Cause that would have just compounded the fact. I don't know if that's embarrassing. I mean, Kerry Wood, I mean, they've, I've read an article recently about the, some of the best games ever pitched. I mean, that was in the top three and it wasn't even a no hitter, but you know, like you yeah, said, that, that thing 20, was filthy. Yeah. Oof. All right. Yeah. But I was so we got like, one last stop question. arguing, get off the field, man, move on. <laughs> last question. It's a long question, but I don't think it has such a long answer. So hopefully we can handle that. Um, yes. Just from Phil G question hello gents first i want to thank y'all for keeping up the good work while everyone is trying to keep their sanity it is refreshing to hear the honest views from both of your perspectives even if brutal or unpopular my question is twofold at this point i currently have a freshman in high school and i'm constantly bombarded with the now big business of baseball it's all about showcases travel teams private lessons and going for the big names in the business it's all about he needs to be at these showcases and be put in front of these people and since you're all on webcam, don't forget to do the air quotes as you read these. Oh, I already forgot. Sorry. These people, <laughs> these showcases. <laughs> if you have dreams of aspirations of playing at the next level, then you need to play year round and attend as many of, the event, of these events as you can. 
sometimes I look at all the costs and feel by the, by the time this is all done with, I could have outright paid for the scholarship he's hoping to get. That being said, how much of this was around when you all were dreaming about playing college and beyond? It seems like those these days, if you aren't six foot plus throwing 92 plus as a right-handed pitcher, it's hard to get noticed. Even with guys like Altuve out there, it seems like size matters. Tuttle, was Velo the first factor in getting you noticed out of high school like it is today? Part two, let's imagine you all have an incoming freshman or sophomore in high school and he is looking to play at the next level. What do you do to help him achieve his goals? Again, I appreciate the views that get expressed on this podcast and love how you all bring a different side of baseball from the perspective of a position player and a pitcher and someone who played in the minors versus someone who's career span mostly in the majors sorry for the long-winded question but what else is there to do during the quarantine phil <laughs> that's so, a good one how'd you get it's noticed, a great Tuttle? Huh? yeah yeah so i'll take the first one so it's funny about the velo and that's exactly what happened i, I think i've told this uh if not on our podcast certainly on rob Fontenot's podcast astros baseball but um basically i was a third baseman shortstop in high school and a hitter and um, during the summer before my senior year, I was playing and, you know, they brought me in to close the game. You know, I had a good arm playing third base or short and they brought me in and I threw hard enough and exactly what he just said. I mean, velocity. So I pitched a little bit my senior year, mostly towards the tail end of games. Maybe I started one or two games, but it was the strong arm. The fact that I had a strong arm and they could put a radar gun on it and go, oh, hey, this guy has a good arm. That got me noticed. The funny thing is, and I've had this conversation with major league pitching coaches um, and minor league pitching coaches, but velocity is the least important factor. I wouldn't say the least important. Now the guys are throwing 98, 99. Once you get into the big leagues in terms of the variable, I mean, everybody's going to throw 88 to 95 that you're going to see. So then it becomes location, movement, how they hide the ball, arm angle, all that stuff. And, and Greg Maddox could attest to that. But for me as a sinker baller, if I could throw good velocity to the right location with some late movement or a little bit of movement, I mean, you know, the scouts in major leagues look at different things than amateur scouts look at because they need to know that, that you know, the deception is real and that they can get guys out. But everybody, I think it's not to say velocity, and you can attest to this, but it's not to say velocity is not important. <laughs> But once everybody throws 90 or above, then velocity goes out the window. It's what you do with your either secondary pitches or what you do with those pitches that you have currently. And I think that's, you know, that's a tough road to kind of understand when you're trying to get noticed and go to these showcases and try and make the big leagues. But velocity will get you noticed. Then you really need someone that talks to you about pitching and how to get guys out and how to add velocity and, and subtract, add and subtract, right? I'm going to throw mm-hmm. this one harder. Yeah. I want to throw this one less hard. And the deception is more important. No, those are excellent points. And I think it's great that you're kind of pointing out like what scouts might actually be looking for, because it is more than just velocity. Of course, if you go out there and blow 98, it looks sexy and it looks great on the radar gun behind you. But at the same time, is the hitter swinging at it? Is he missing it? Is he barreling it up? Or can you even get into the strike zone? So there's a lot of, a lot of other factors that go in there. And if you show me the ball visibly You know, if I can see the ball out of your hand, you can throw it. You know, I think it was Hank Aaron who said, you know, you you can't sneak the cheese by a rat, but, you know, cheese being the fastball. And he said, you know, there was some scout that even said, you know, if you fired a bullet straight through the strike zone, 
Hank Aaron's going to get a barrel on it. You know, so, I mean, the velocity really doesn't matter. If you're in the big leagues, you've got quick hands, you've got great eye-hand coordination as a hitter. So the fastball is the one pitch that if you are in the big leagues, you should be able to hit because it lacks some of the motions, some of the, you know, there's varying factors, but you should be able to square up the straight one. It's the wrinkles that kind of give guys issues. And, you know, for every two, you know, it's hard in club baseball because, yes, six foot five is going to get you noticed. Yes, 98 is going to get you noticed. And you have to be very good at some of the other attributes in order to overcome that because, a, you know, not a majority, well, I guess you could say a majority of guys that are in professional sports are the Adonises. They're the six foot four, 230 pound guys that can run, have a good arm, can hit for power and average. You know, the anomalies are the Jose Altuve's, the Dustin Pedroia's, you know, the Dave Roberts, you know, the, some of these smaller guys who figure out a way to go out there and, and succeed. But uh, I'm in a position with four daughters who play volleyball that I have been in the club sport situation. So as a parent, I understand the question of should I invest now to pay off later or should I, you know, hang back now and invest later. But I think, it, you know, what's tough about not being in club volleyball or not playing in a high school varsity situation is exposure. Are you getting the exposure you need to get noticed to be able to achieve at the next level? And I think that's where you kind of walk that fine line. And a lot of the conversations that I do have with my daughters is where do you want to go with this? How do you feel about volleyball? Is volleyball something you really want to do? Because if you want to play volleyball, I know my daughters, they're not, there's no pro league that you can go straight into. You have to go play college volleyball. And Tuttle and I can both attest to this. Being a student athlete is no joke, man. You've got to study. You've got to manage your time. You've got to get good grades. And then you have to go out and perform at a Division One, Division Two, Division Three level. That is no easy task. That takes a lot of mental fortitude. It takes a lot of heart. It takes a lot of training and discipline. And that's where I think I fall into the, the part where I want my daughters to understand that. And I want them to understand that if they're going to do that, I'm going to back them up 100% and give them as many opportunities as I can. And yes, it may be expensive, but if they're, if they're going to dedicate the time and the energy to go out there, I, that's where I kind of justify how much I'm paying to have them go do it. So if it's going to help them become better athletes, awesome. If it's going to help them get exposure, awesome. But ultimately, what do we all want our kids to do? We want them to, to become better people. And I'm in, the, I'm in the camp of organized sports is great because it teaches discipline, responsibility, accountability. And then I believe in, in sport itself because it teaches, especially in the game of baseball, it teaches us how to deal with failure, failure and to adapt to situations and move forward and not get completely obliterated by uh, failing and understanding that you can get back up and be successful even after a failure. Yeah, you know, that's a great way to finish out the mailbag. And that's why I say that question for last. I mean, you know, getting noticed is important. And as you mentioned, you know, most of the guys in pro sports um, you know, six foot five, two thirty. I mean, you know, maybe not those statistics, but from a pitching standpoint, you know, velocity at ninety to ninety-five, like those, those are the things that stand out. But what do you do with that? And you know, I'd much rather kind of role model what you just said, which is intestinal fortitude. Um, you know, getting back up after you fall down, and and to kind of just finish off the question that he asked. I mean, the best advice is if you're really into it, work hard at it. I, I think. There yeah, you want to encourage very, that. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. There are very few people that um, can say, oh, well, 
you know, I worked so hard at this and I put everything into it that, uh, that, you know, this is going to pay off. I mean, you, you have to, um, you know, not only do you have to want it, but you have to want it so bad that you just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And, and whether you make it or not, isn't the success. The success is that you had a passion for something and that you pursued it. I mean, I think you probably get asked this question, like, when did you know you're going to be a big leaguer? You know, I didn't really know that I was going to play professional baseball probably till my senior year in high school. And then I thought that was such a, still a distant reality. And I'd been mm -hmm. a good athlete my whole life, just like you had. So I think the, the better question is you'll hear people say, Oh yeah, you got to go to this showcase. You got to be seen by this person and you got to do that. And I see you shaking your head. I mean, that's how I feel. I mean, don't let other people dictate how you're going to, you know, what your path and what your road to success is going to be. If you have the ability to afford to go to some of those showcases, great. If that's something that your son or you want to do, great, go for it. Um, but as you said, you ask your daughters, I ask my kids all the time, is this something that you want to do? Then let's, let's make it happen if we can, but don't let somebody else. I mean, my neighbors all the time, well, if your daughter doesn't play soccer for two years, there's no way she could ever play soccer in high school. And it's like, well, I mean, she's playing other sports. Is that a true statement or isn't it? So I, I feel like we've talked about this kind of at length on this podcast in many different iterations. There are so many different roads to success. Your road is going to be unique and it's going to be, um, you know, your road and your path. And I would just kind of, you know, be comfortable and be confident in that you're making the right decisions for your family and your kids and where you guys want to go. Excellent points. It's a great conversation and it kind of leads me into the next topic now that we're done with mailbag. And obviously we appreciate everybody who gets on the mailbag and reaches out to us through bleacherblums.com. And, you know, talking about getting to a point where you become a phenomenal athlete and you achieve your ultimate goal. I'm not too sure anybody at home has not seen the last dance. It is a uh, documentary put out by ESPN regarding the nineties uh, bulls teams uh, most notably Michael Jordan and his uh, impact on that team. But, you know, I've, I've watched it and I loved it for so many different reasons. And I'm a Michael Jordan guy as opposed to LeBron James. I love LeBron James. I like watching him play. I appreciate how hard he plays and the numbers he puts up. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's a different era thing for me. Um, and it's also maybe a little selfish on my part because I watched Michael Jordan as a, as a young man growing up and watching him succeed at, a, at such a high level. But uh, the, the 90s were crazy. You could, I mean, watching some of the replays and some of the highlights that they're showing of Michael Jordan absolutely blew my mind again and kind of reiterated the fact that I feel comfortable in saying Michael Jordan was the greatest player ever. And I think it was because he did make guys around him better. Um, I think that if you unplugged, I heard an argument, if you unplug, you know, Michael Jordan with the team still be good. Yes. But at the same time, how much greater did he make them? Um, but it kind of goes to what Tuttle was talking about. There's a mental attitude and there's a, for, you know, there's an, there's an internal gear that we don't know about that some of these great players have in pushing forward and that inner drive to be great. James Worthy told that great story at UNC playing with Michael Jordan as a, when Michael Jordan was a freshman saying, you know, James said, he goes, I was the best player on the team at that time. And he goes, that lasted for about two weeks because I started working out with Michael Jordan who wouldn't come off the court. He would constantly be on the court. He eventually 
eventually got better than me and uh, we went on to great careers, but he, it was clear that he had something that was pushing him a little bit harder. And then all the stories you hear about Michael Jordan throughout the course of seasons, he never wanted to lose, whether it be a, a you know, an exhibition game in Paris or whatever they were playing, he was going to go out there and dominate the situation. Um, I want to get your thoughts on Jordan. You don't have to tell me if you think he's the greatest of all time, but uh, I kind of want to dig into a little bit about uh, maybe some great players and maybe their mental attitude. But have you, did you watch any of that uh, Tuttle? So it's on the it's on the list to watch. I didn't watch it yet, but oh. you know, I but I know. I mean, yeah. I, I will watch it. I know we we what watched I read it live it. as young men in sports watching it, so we know exactly. a lot about it. Yeah, yeah. Jordan was uh, around when we were uh, coming up, and um, I, I think you know Kobe has that same mentality, and I think it's funny because you. And I grew up in a very highly competitive kind of environment. I joke about growing up in a locker room, you know, I mean, regardless of whether, whether it was college, I think I got there when I was what, 18 to all the way till I was 30. The guys I hung out with were mostly in a locker room or on a bus or on a charter or wherever. And I think that you're, you know, you're kind of in this environment where even that is the norm is that all these guys are very similar. They're competitive and they're talented and they're all this. And then there's still guys that elevate above and beyond that. And I'm sure that you have stories about either who carried you guys to the world series championship or guys in your clubhouse that were just different. And I don't mean different like AJ Persinski. I mean, <laughs> I, knew that name like, was coming up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, different, like they were, you know, like Mark Burley, you know, they, I read a really good article. I meant to share that with you about Mark Burley, how it was right before the playoffs or right, uh, right when the playoffs started against Kansas city. Oh, that was in the world series before the world series with the Kansas city, the ALCS that year. No, it was, uh, we went through the Boston Red Sox and the DS, and then we, where we had the uh, Angels. We had the Angels okay. in the championship series. So the Kansas City game, right before the playoffs started. Um, yeah, we had a Kansas City-Cleveland uh, uh, series right before the end of the season. Yeah, so the Kansas City series, they were just saying how Burley's complete game, like that 2 nothing shutout, was the kind of the propeller. It propelled everybody. You know, you were on the team. You might shake your head and say no, but – I guess the point of this is the greatness piece. Like he just well, it dominated could have been for the individual know. too. I mean, it doesn't have to be for the whole team, but at the same time, it, you know, if you affect the individual, it could affect the team too. Yeah, no, no, no. And that was my point about the individuals, these great individuals that maybe mm -hmm. were selfish. Like I want to be great for myself, but it reflected well on the team because they're like, Hey, we don't want to let this guy down. I mean, I think that's the hardest part when you become, uh, a baseball player. I, I played all these other sports and it kind of always came down to you, but I can pitch a great game and the shortstop could kick the ball at the end of the game and we lose the game. <laughs> and, and, you know, I couldn't take it out on him. I knew he was trying his hardest. I mean, I guess I could take it out on him, but you know, like you said, we all know how great Jordan was, but I think what we're learning from the last dance and what I've read and what I've seen is that eventually he really made his teammates better as well. And once he made his teammates better and he was so great, I think that that, you know, obviously that propelled him to a new level with those six championships. But I think Kobe comes to mind. LeBron certainly comes to mind. LeBron went to what, like eight or nine championship series oh in a row? Gosh, yeah. I mean, every team, I'm on Miami Heat. You're going to the championship series. I'm on a Cleveland Cavaliers. You're going. All right. I'm a Laker. We're going to go this year. Like, I mean, it's just, he's, he's obviously a type of player. I'd be, I'd throw it back to you and say, I mean, did you ever have the good fortune of playing with a guy like, 
that maybe some of those guys on the Astros that you're still friends with, some of the Hall of Famers, I mean, I don't know who, maybe it was just a good collection of guys or where's that one transcendent talent? Um, you know, those, uh, it's, it's, baseball is hard too, because you've got nine guys on the field at a time and you've got a, nine guys in your lineup. So you do kind of rely on others. And like you're saying, in order to be a great pitcher, everybody talks about, I'll just give you an example is everybody talks about how great, uh, you know, the Astros pitching has been in, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, they've been so good. And a lot of the reason is, and you hear some of the interviews, especially from guys like Justin Verlander and, uh, Garrett Cole to that point. They're high strikeout guys, but they also understand if the ball's put in play, they need guys to make plays behind them. So I think as a pitcher, in order to be great, you can do a lot, but it's you still can fall victim to bad defense, limited range, <laughs> bad luck, you know, whatever. So I think there's a lot of the mentality and the intestinal fortitude. And I'm glad that you brought up the Kobe Bryant uh, mentality because it was that black mamba mentality. And uh, sorry to get not to get off topic, but uh, – Jeff Bagwell was a guy, you know, all these guys you talk about are being great. And I think you pointed it out is if, if they, if they did what they were capable of, our team was going to be great. Vladimir Guerrero, when I was with the Montreal Expos, you know, he fell victim to having 24 other guys on the team that were a third of what he was, you know, it wasn't until he got with the angels that he got very good. And some of the other teams that he played for where he had some success and got some playoff runs, you know, but when he, he could single-handedly win games. And I saw that personally when he was coming up, but he was a guy that we knew we're like, come on, Vlad, if Vlad gets a hit, hit off this guy, we're going to have a chance. And he'd go out there and smash one off Tom Glavin. You're like, okay, let's go boys. You know, they provide a little bit of a spark and inspiration, too, if they're able to go out there and be successful. But Bag Bagwell was kind of that silent leader that would go out there and grind every day, run hard every day. And all of a sudden, you said, okay, if he can do it, I can do it kind of mentality. Um, there were certain pitchers that were on the mound where you felt like you elevated your game a little bit because they were pitching so well. Um, I, had the I was lucky enough to play with uh, Greg Maddox towards the end of his career in San Diego. And that was a guy – who even at that time with a diminishing skill set was able to go out there and give you five, six strong innings. He knew that's, that was basically the limit of what he could give you, but he was going to maximize every part of that. And I think that's where some of his greatness kind of came through is when he didn't have the stuff that he normally had. But the amount of work that is not seen, you know, the, the stories about staying two hours after practice like Jordan did when he was at UNC, it's uh, the way that Max Scherzer goes out and, and completes his bullpen and how he gets pissed off when he doesn't throw a slider the way he wants and he stays after it until he gets it the way he wants it. Um, you know, it's uh, the way these guys go about their business. It's just different. And the Kobe thing that you brought up with Kobe, the black mama mentality, this grinder, this workhorse, you know, these guys have a different gear, not only during the game, but I think off the court that makes them great. The focus on perfection is what makes them wonderful and so much fun to talk about. But it's kind of interesting that MJ, Michael Jordan, is worried about this documentary putting him in a bad light. I find that fascinating because I don't think his play and his career could make anything look like he was put in a bad light. But it kind of made me think a little bit. And then you, br you brought up Kobe Bryant and – Michael Jordan was a little arrogant. Michael Jordan was a little bit of a selfish bully at times when he wanted the ball and he wanted to go out there and win. He talked a big game to management. Kobe Bryant, a little bit of an on-court bully. 
I mean, some of these great, phenomenal athletes, are they just glorified bullies on the court that are that much better than everybody and just pushed everybody to the side and just dominated? I don't think they're that much better. I think that that's the difference. I mean, you, you would go to the cages. You would go show up every day to BP. Like, I would, th- I would run stadiums when no one was there, and I would throw my bullpens, and I was mm-hmm. working hard at it, and I wanted to win. I liked to win. It made me feel um, – competitively successful but to your point this is that other gear i mean that bully thing isn't necessarily a bully it was this ultimate arrogance and i think it's really funny and you know that's that argument between arrogance and confidence like where's that line well to be honest with you i mean those guys wanted to win more than anything and i think it's funny that to hear that michael jordan doesn't want to be portrayed in a bad light because what really comes out i think I guess they need to have a bully. And the article I read said Jerry Krause ends up being a bully in this, that he didn't want to, you know, he was breaking up the team. He wanted to do this, but really, I mean, the, the thing that comes out of this is that you just see how badly he wanted to win. I mean, Kobe Bryant would show up at 5 a.m. in high school at lower Marion high school and shoot baskets and stuff. And, you know, I, I remember, and so this isn't on the same level, but this is that next level. When I was bored, I would get a tennis ball and a glove and I would just throw the ball against my garage door and work on taking ground balls and just, just for fun. It wasn't like I wanted to like dominate the world in baseball. It was just what I did. And so these guys would do that at a young age, you know, shoot free throws, getting cut from his high school basketball team, whatever that switch that flipped for MJ or, you know, for Jordan, some of these guys have. And I guess I thought you made the best point of all in this conversation is that basketball is way different. I mean, look at the Warriors lost, you know, KD to the Nets and, you know, Clay Thompson blew out his knee and this year Steph Curry started with a bad finger and they were horrible, you know, (laughs) whereas like LeBron keeps moving from team to team and he gets one other guy with him. You know, one year it was Tristan Thompson and, you know, he had, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this year he got, you know, Anthony Davis to go with him to, you know, Lakeland and, uh, you know, I mean, Lakerland and he just, I mean, he just continues to be successful. Kobe, same thing. He won championships with Shaq. He won championships without Shaq. Jordan won championships, then quit, played some minor league baseball <laughs> against Tuttle, and then decided that he didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to go down that road and ride the bus, and uh, from Chattanooga to to Birmingham, and he went back and won some more championships. It's kind of like that guy. You know, these guys are different, and I think you brought up the ultimate point, which is in you know, basketball, it makes such a difference with that mentality. Football, even a quarterback that has that mentality, somebody like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or, you know, these guys that, you know, are just there to win and win and win, continue to go to the playoffs, have won some, you know, Super Bowls. I just think that, yeah, there are transcendent athletes. um, And in those specific sports, I think more so than baseball, which was your point, they can can utilize their skills to really, um, you know, manifest their destiny. Yeah, it's definitely passion and talent because you and I being in the sport, being drafted, going through the minor leagues and then watching a lot of and hearing a lot of the stories, there's obviously guys that are just unbelievably talented, maybe more talented than us, maybe as talented as a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant, uh, but just didn't have the mentality to pursue that passion or that desire to go out and do it. So I think it's a combination and that's always going to be the, 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 you know, what we're going to try and do is how do we, how do you unlock that greatness or how do you find it? But I'm with you in the sense that it, it, you know, transcendent means 
means something like we'll never see it again, generational talent or something, just freak mode, whatever it is, we can't explain it, but we definitely do appreciate it because when you get to the level or you, you play at a certain level and then you see guys actually in it do that much more and just start to rise and increase out of it and get on a different level where you just kind of sit back and go, I mean, there, there were times where you sat back and you go, we are witnessing history. We're witnessing greatness. We are, we are seeing it happen unfold in front of us. And if you watch enough sport and you're able to see that, it's, it's an amazing thing. And I thoroughly enjoy that uh, aspect of it. But that's one of the things we'll continue to talk about on this podcast in life. You know, what makes those people that much greater? And a lot of it is that internal switch that maybe we haven't figured out or we didn't touch on or maybe we touch on in different parts of our lives. But uh, the NFL is having a draft coming up, and they're looking for their own version of greatness and who's it going to be. I am not sure how it's going to unfold other than the fact that what Tuttle said last podcast is the only thing that is making me tune into this <laughs> NFL draft is because I want to see uh, Roger Goodell in his, you know, in his comfy, his large oversized sweatshirt, maybe a cup of coffee, and uh, reading off some names. But uh, do you, I'm going to ask Tuttle real quick. I'm going to rattle off some things. Do you have any concerns about how this is going to run? Because I've read a couple articles today where I didn't think about it until now. Scouts, general managers, uh, coaches, they're not going to be in the same room. So you're going to have to find a way to connect all those guys. Uh, you know, it's not going to be that war room scene where you have 30 guys on top of each other staring at a computer screen going, that guy, I want that guy. Um, the commissioner and everybody who's running the technical side of the draft is not going to be in the same room. That could create some issues. Dude, I did a Zoom meeting with Astro fans a couple weeks ago, and I saw things I never wanted to see and I never want to see again in my life. Hackers are hackers. You imagine being a hacker right now going, oh, boy. I got a chance to get in on the NFL draft that everybody's going to be watching. I'm going to put out some of my good stuff. This thing could blow up, man. This could be absolutely dangerous. So I've got some serious concerns, and I might be watching it for the car wreck it might be. I have a feeling that they're uh, probably going to be a little ahead of the curve on that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely – I mean, we've done Zoom calls. My neighbor's, like, you know, blowing his backyard right now. I don't know what the heck he's doing. <laughs> it was fine at the beginning of the podcast, and now it's like, you know, what That'd the heck be is great. going on? So, Tell, have yeah, Roger yell out the window. Turn off the mower! Yeah, something. So we talked about Roger a little bit last time. I mean, they can make this a lot of fun. You mentioned the war room. I mean, that should be a simple thing, which is there should be their group or their Zoom call. Who are we going to take? And then there's one dude on the phone with Goodell that says, this is the guy we're going to take. Now, obviously, with the owner and the GM, there could be that, no, no, he said this, he said that. So there definitely could be some... Uh, some challenges maybe they get they make the pick and then they get 30 seconds to confirm the pick or something like that I'm, I'm joking obviously I mean once the guy's name's announced it's a done deal but uh there are definitely some things no that take can backs. happen no take backs right I wanted that guy no 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 I want that guy no. just like in the playground no 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 the other Ohio State guy no no the guy <laughs> behind him <laughs> right exactly, yeah. there's like nine Ohio State guys for the first round but yeah seriously anyway so, uh, yes, I mean, there could be some glitches. I have a feeling that you know this from the security that they run with MLB. I mean, the security team with the NFL has been thinking about this probably for the past two months. And oh, they're definitely going to um, uh, discourage any sort of uh, 
uh, hacking and any of that kind of stuff. But it certainly could be um, challenging, as you mentioned with the Astros call. But I, I think the most important thing is what we touched on last podcast. They should take advantage of this. I mean, this is like a fantasy football sure. draft. I mean, Roger Goodell should do the old like masterpiece theater. We talked about the high back leather chair. Like, <laughs> good evening. And thank you for joining us for this year's NFL draft. Like, Just a slow you know, turn. Yeah. And with the second yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it should be, they should just capitalize on it with advertising. He should have like, like I said, he like Miller light up on this bookshelf. He should have, you know, something else up on this bookshelf. I mean, they should really take advantage of it. I don't think they will. They're probably going to keep it a, a pretty sterile product if I had to guess, but, uh, but I think there's a lot of um, opportunity here. And I think to your point, they're probably just going to be more concerned about getting the communication right. Um, no hackers and no glitches going on with their, uh, with their presentation. But uh, I'm going to watch to start. I always like seeing the top 10 guys anyway, even though we all know who those guys typically are. Um, it's actually the later rounds where the more interesting stuff happens. But, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity that I believe the NFL will still stay top of mind, but I think they're going to probably let it come and go without utilizing any of the uh, bleacher blum suggestions or any of the other suggestions <laughs> that they've received. So. Hey, it's their loss. And we are definitely in a time where things are going to be a little bit crazy. They've got to kind of reinvent themselves. I'm with you in the sense that they do need to be creative. And I think it's great that they are moving on with this and they probably have thought those things out. And that being said, Major League Baseball, a couple of weeks ago, they've been interviewing a lot of players. And Justin Turner is actually a guy speaking of adjustments to games and adjustments to situations and with the Major League Baseball talking about playing a shortened season, we've talked about the issues with that as far as rosters, how they're going to be constructed, maybe have a couple more guys and expand that roster because you're going to be playing a lot of games in a short amount of time. And as that was all going down about two or three weeks ago, Justin Turner, third baseman for the Dodgers, actually came up with, I think, I don't know how you feel about it, Tuttle, but I think is a very good idea. And uh, he said that if it does get to extra innings, now, we know that, uh, that you can deplete pitching staffs, you can deplete players and rosters when you do play these extra inning games. Why not, in this shortened season due to the pandemic, why not have, in the extra innings, home run derby? Each team picks a player, you get 10 pitches, whoever hits the most out wins the ball game. I love it because I want to save my pitching, I want to save my players, and then I want to entertain the fans. It'll be like our own version of the shootout. It'll just be home run derby style and go out there and do it. And it might actually affect how uh, teams put their roster together, because maybe you have that guy that just hits bombs in BP, bring him off the bench, let him hit some bombs, and let's move on to the next game. What do you got, Tuttle? You like it or don't like it? I actually like it. I mean, I think it's a very hitter The pitcher said yes! hitterish solution but look as a pitcher it's not going to affect my era <laughs> exactly it's save yeah. my arm yeah and like you said you can bring up a like a joey gallo type guy from triple a who can't really hit a remember russell ball or brannion oh yeah like bring Dude. up russell brannion even jim tomey actually he made it to the <laughs> hall of fame but you know a guy like that that would just yeah. hit bombs all day long like all right russell you're in all right he just sat there and he hits eight home runs out of ten they get, you know, they get credit for the win and you move on. I mean, hockey started doing that. Hockey's overtimes went longer and longer oh. and longer. And so they started going four on four, three on three, two on two. 
you basically got two on two. That I mean, that's like talk about open ice. Those guys get tired, yeah. but I don't think there's anything wrong with it, especially when we keep talking about we're you know we tried this out in the independent leagues or we tried this out in the minor leagues. This is a shortened season. We all know why it was shortened, but if it's going to be a hundred game season, let's try it out. You know, I mean, it's not like guys are going to get 500 ABs this year or 550 mm-hmm. at bats, and you know, I mean, it's going to be. It's going to be a trying year anyway. We might as well try it out. I mean, they're going to do the – it's better than moving the mound back. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get back to that, yeah. yeah. So, uh, anyway, so I, I think it's an excellent idea. They've got to be creative. Um, I don't think it affects the game a whole lot, but um, I'm sure somebody can come up with a counter argument. But I, I, I do like the idea. I mean, we've got a couple of good ideas uh, coming coming to the table, whether it be – we talked about the quarantine, like coming out of the quarantine solution to get games started. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I like, I like JT's idea a lot. Yeah, and I think it opens itself up. I think Major League Baseball will probably look into some other situations. I'm not sure how drastic they can get, but I think that's one that they could actually pull off and uh, keep the fan base engaged and keep the guys on the, on the bench engaged. I think it's a great idea. Um, we're going to move on to the PGA, a quick hit on baseball. Now we're going to move to the PGA because Brooks Kepka had come out and had some quotes as far as the PGA getting back to play. We had plotted them last week saying that we love the fact, or at least I love the fact that they're going to get out there and make a schedule and say that they're going to go out and play. It's one of the few sports where you can actually talk about self-distancing and go out and play because you're not sharing clubs. You're not touching the same golf ball. And uh, it's interaction with you and your caddy, and you can kind of play alongside a guy and not really come in contact with them. And I'm sure they've explored some scenarios. But Brooks Kepka kind of came out with uh, some interesting quotes, basically said it's going to be awful for so many reasons. One of them most notably is going to be the atmosphere, which I do, I do understand. But that's one of the sacrifices that I think professional athletes are going to have to make in this situation we're in right now where it's just about getting the game on, getting it on TV. And he kind of admitted as much, saying that I know fans on TV will enjoy it, but it's the fan and the interaction at these uh, stadiums, golf courses that these guys are going to miss out on. So Brooks Kepka, if he steps up uh, at the Masters with, uh, you know, a one-shot lead, he has to make the putt to win it. And if he misses the putt, they go to a playoff. Guess what? He makes the putt. Yay. I mean, is that all it's going to be? Is it going to be him? He's not going to be able to high-five his caddy. He's not going to be able to hug his caddy. Who knows if his family's going to be there? So I get that aspect of it. But at the same time, I think it's an opportunity to go out there. But one of the funnier things that I thought of uh, that he said that really made me think that this is kind of a wacky uh, notion to be upset about playing with no fans, fans apparently do a very good job of finding some errant shots. And my thought is, hey, Brooks, Welcome to real golf. This is, yeah. this is how Tuttle and I play, man. Did you see where my ball went? Yeah, I think it was that third tree or near that red stake down the right-hand side. Go find yeah. your own ball, man, or hit it down the middle. Wow. Bold statement from you. I, uh, you know, I like the idea. I, I actually like, you know, Brooks is pretty um, kind of reserved, I, I, I understood, or the way I look at these guys are, you know, just I guess like baseball players as well. We block things out when we're – you know, doing the job that we're getting paid to do. Well, but golf, I think they literally like hold up signs that say, shut up, I'm hitting the ball. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Quiet, please. Shut up, I'm hitting the ball. Whatever, you know, whatever the sign says, put it in the put pot. It, put it in the know. pot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got all kinds of, we got all kinds of signs after today. Um, you know, 
I, I just think that it's nice to actually hear. It's refreshing to hear somebody say, I like the noise. I like the buzz. I like the, the energy I get from the crowd because that's not the impression I've had from professional golfers in the past. <laughs> you know, every time they're in their backswing, it's like, shh, keep it. The caddy's like yelling at you. You know, usually yelling at photographers, but still any movement, any sort of, you know, and I get it from a focus standpoint, but come on. Like, I, I, anyway, to me, it's refreshing to hear Brooks Kepka say, you know what? I'm going to miss the fans. I don't know if he was saying it to the point, like, I won't go back on the golf course till there are fans. I mean, obviously we know yeah. that this is kind of a, a fluid situation and most likely temporary, but how are we going to get back into some sense of normalcy? But I think of all the major sports, um, you know, if there's any sport we can kind of get rolling right now without uh, fans and without, uh, I guess, an audience congregating, um, then golf would be the one. And I think it's a great mm -hmm. place to start. Yeah, I love that you brought up actually some sense of normalcy because I'm going to ask you one last question during this segment that we're trying to touch on all these sports is, you know, as the, we are the GP. And for those of you who do not know what the GP is, it means general public. And uh, athletes are in an upper echelon. They're on a different stratosphere. They're in a bubble, whatever you want to call it. But we are the GP. And one thing that we keep hearing about as the GP in the news is, is this the new norm? Do you think that professional athletes has to have to understand that things will not go back to the way they understood them and that they have to adjust also, also to their new norm? Well, I mean, I, I think that we're all going to have to. I mean, we joke about our podcast had started way before quarantine and the fact that you live in Houston and I live here, we've been kind of, you know, modeling this for a while, the Zoom call or whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that we're, whatever that new normal is going to be, it's not going to be the same as it was before. It's just inevitable that things change. So I don't know how many changes people are going to have to make. And maybe in 12 months, we are back to almost what we thought was normal. But, uh, but I, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball to tell you that, uh, that things are going to be exactly the same. I just feel like they won't be the same. And so I think GP, professional athlete, you know, fighter, pilot, astronaut, we're all going to have to learn how to, uh, to deal with some new things and some new, uh, new frontiers. I completely agree. It's time to be very open-minded and understand that things are going to be a little bit different getting back into it. It may be years before we get back to what we remember it actually being, but what I love is consistency and what has been consistent on this podcast is dude, you're not going to be able to see this on the podcast, but man, I've got graphics. I hope you're ready for this Tuttle because this is your segment. All right. What'll, Tuttle, say. <laughs> nice. You got your own graphics. I appreciate that. I had my quarantine day 39 thing up. So today is not, you were talking about MJ and the talent that he has. Today is not the greatest day in uh, what'll Tuttle say history. Um, I, uh, I read an article this week about our favorite uh, sort of delinquent baseball player, Josh Hamilton. And I had some thoughts oh. on that. And it's so weird that you brought up Michael Jordan and the greatness. And I, d I don't know why that was uh, in my craw this week. But, uh, you know, you can always tell by your reaction that I did not tell you what what a Tuttle was going to say. I love that part of it, too, but, because I'm like, what is he going to do now? Yeah. 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 So anyway, so Josh Hamilton was in the news again. Uh, he's arrested and indicted on the fact that he uh, abused his daughter, 12 year old daughter. And I'll preface this by saying this is not like throw Josh Hamilton under the bus day, but uh, what a weird uh, kind of tortured life that this guy has lived since he was the number one pick in the draft. I think it was 1999. 
So we're looking at like 20 years. He was the number one pick in the draft and uh, by the Tampa Bay Rays. And uh, a guy that I played baseball with was in big league camp the first year that Josh Hamilton was in big league camp, the De- devil Rays. They were the devil Rays back then. And I'm sure you have some stories as well. You might've been in the same camp. But, no, uh, I was, I was yeah. actually, I was with the Tampa Bay devil Rays at the time, but I was there. I think it was the year they sent him home. Okay. Well, that's the year though in camp. So oh, that's wow. the year I'm talking about. Yeah. It was, I should ask, I should have asked you this before. Chad it was like 0304. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I know Chad. Okay. But, so uh, Chad was, he wasn't in camp yeah. with me that year. It was, it might've been a year before. All right. Well, Chad was drafted the year that I was with the Reds. We were roommates mm-hmm. at one time or another, but he said that there were so many days. So Josh Hamilton, this first year, I and mean, everybody kind of knows his trials and tribulations, but it became kind of a, a knock is every day they come into the clubhouse and Josh Hamilton's jerseys hanging in his locker and he wouldn't put it on. He wasn't there. He disappeared for like eight days. And so <laughs> Matola was saying he put on like Hamilton's like Jersey and would wear it around the clubhouse. And they're like, Hey Josh. Oh no, you're not Josh. Hey Josh. You're not. Nope. You're not Josh. Like, I mean, he disappeared and obviously, you know, he had uh, drug issues. He had some other things, um, alcoholism issues and he overcame that or so they thought I had the, fortune of playing against Josh Hamilton at one time or another he was coming up and I was hanging out and he blew right past me at some point but just you know that guy could hit like without working at it I mean he was a gifted gifted athlete or is a gifted athlete then we all know the story about him coming back and actually winning the MVP with the Texas Rangers and just Mm -hmm. you know having that personal valet personal assistant to kind of keep him on track but I guess my ultimate thought is if you need somebody like that in your pocket all the time you know, on your shoulder telling you what the right thing to do is when that person's not there, you know, you're in big trouble. And so there are a lot of, um, you know, people that probably have a better insight than I do. I'm not a mental health specialist. And, um, you know, Josh also had that, he threw a a ball to a fan who fell over the over, you know, the railing up in a, I don't know. Do you remember that? Do you know all this stuff? I remember hearing the story, but Uh, I didn't get into the specifics of it. I had no idea that he was, you know, borderline. Oh man, that's, yeah. So anyway, black cloud just follows the guy all over the place. Yeah. And I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but you were talking about the greatness of MJ. I mean, this is a guy who is really kind of the opposite end of that, that spectrum, which is he had all the talent in the world and maybe we've seen glimpses and flashes of it, mm-hmm. um, but just can't seem to get out of his own way. And, and I just, I don't know. I mean, we talk about the, the uh, mailbag that we had earlier where the guy said, what does it take to get there? I mean, look, that guy was basically handed, you know, here's the golden key, the golden ticket. You're going to be a big leaguer. All you have to do is kind of just show up every day show and up. do what you have to do. Yeah. And he couldn't do it. And, um, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't really have a conclusion to this, except that, you know, the one thing you cannot do <laughs> is hit a woman. The other thing you can't do is beat your children or hit uh, a, a child that is your, that, that is your own. And I just think that um, each time, we think he sees the light and each time there seems to be a glimmer of hope for him, which I was holding out hope as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he just seems to slam the door shut and uh, hit his own thumb with a hammer. And I just, uh, I feel for the guy, but I also think it's time to like, you know, shape up and, you know, and if he has to go away and go to jail, then he has to go away. So I think Jim Rome used to say allegedly, right. So he's allegedly hit his daughter, but uh mm-hmm but it's just a sad story and I wasn't trying to bring any sadness to this, but I just read a long article about um, kind of the road that he 
has taken to get where he is now. And I believe he's in jail or out on bail mm -hmm. awaiting some sort of hearing or trial on the fact that he uh, abused his daughter. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, it's just a sad story. So you probably have some stories around that, but the kind of the opposite of the MJ's last dance, Josh Hamilton no. and the, and the lack of greatness that he uh, fulfilled. Yeah, I feel like there's an inadvertent theme about this podcast that we got going on as far as the mentality of what we're going through as the general public is right now, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with being stuck inside and trying to, uh, uh, you know, have faith in the fact that we will get back outside and get back to some semblance of what, you know, like you said, normalcy that we're accustomed to. Um, but it's also the mentality of greatness. But, you know, th that's the part we kind of hinted at. You know, you've got to have the talent. You've got to have the passion. And you've got to have the discipline to go out there. And it's just amazing to me to think because in that first, uh, first installment, I believe it was, of The Last Dance, they talked about Michael Jordan going from college to the NBA. And it wasn't necessarily – he said on the court, easiest transition ever. But he's a, he's a talent that's going to go out there and dominate and find a way to win. It was, he said that he went knocking around on some hotel room doors trying to find some guys to hang out with. And he goes in a room, drugs, women, booze, you know, the whole thing. And isn't it amazing that the difference between a guy like Josh Hamilton, who's hyper talented, freakishly talented, and a guy like Michael Jordan with the same amount of talent in his sport walked in a room and said, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to walk out and I'm going to leave because I don't want to be a part of it because it's not going to help me get to where I want to be. And Josh Hamilton decided to stay in that situation and continue to do those things. But I, I also believe, and I don't understand this because I have never been in a position where I've been addicted to something. And that's where I really feel terrible for a lot of these people out there who don't, they don't have the ability to make the conscious choice to get out of the room or get away from the situation. And then it turns into this perpetual thing where maybe he hasn't gotten the help. And that's where, you know, it's kind of taboo to talk about in sports is the anxiety or the pressure or the uh, you know, everybody says, Oh, you're playing a sport. You love you're, you're, you're a 12 year old kid getting paid to play a sport, but there are a lot of exterior elements pushing in on even the most average guy out there. So I kind of feel, I do feel for Josh Hamilton in the sense that he has dealt with a lot, but I agree with you in the sense that there has to be a trigger inside your head that says, this is not acceptable and I can't do this. And unfortunately, he went past that, you know, too far. Well, I love that you tied that into the theme of this podcast. That wasn't the intent. That just was the Waddle Tuttle say uh, segment because I, I, I really, you know, I don't know. I just, we had crossed paths a bunch of times and I just, you know, I, I do, I feel for the guy, but you know, it's time to, like I said, you know, you, you said he doesn't have that conscious trigger, but it's unfortunate. And you, you brought up the pressure, which I like, I mean, Chuck Knobloch, Mackie Sasser, uh, Rick oh. Ankiel, guys like that, that, you know, have played in the big leagues for a long time. Um, and all of a sudden a switch flips and it's like, whoa, I can't even throw the ball to first base or I can't get the ball back to the pitcher. Rick Ankiel couldn't throw strikes. And then of course mm -hmm. showed how talented he was by making it back to the big leagues as a hitter and an outfielder. It's like, whoa, that guy's uber talented. So again, there are pressures, um, you know, everybody handles them differently. And I think that, uh, that, uh, you know, he's just, gone down a dark, dark road for a long, long time. And it's really unfortunate. So uh, I wasn't trying to bring the podcast down. I love how you intertwined into the theme of the podcast, which is greatness and talent and all those other things that, you know, you know, they, they kind of branch off in all different directions. So with that, I will, I don't have any graphics for you. I apologize. Maybe our producer can do that on the back end. <laughs> uh, 
let's throw it over to Lloyd and Harry and Blum and Blummer. Yeah, Blum and Blummer. And I talked about it last week. And actually, you know what? I got uh, some pretty good feedback as far as what I talked about last week. And it was stats. We're talking about this new era of analytics, saber, saber metrics, whatever you want to call it. There's obviously new ways to talk about baseball, whereas Tuttle and I would say, you know what? This guy gets on base a lot and hits a lot of homers. That is now OPS. <laughs> and that is what we're going to touch on today with another fine graphic brought to you by Blum and Blummer. So OPS, it's going to be on-base percentage plus slugging percentage. That is exactly what OPS is. And again, these are going to be stats that I will give you that you can look up on your own. You may see it on a scoreboard. A lot of, a lot of teams are putting it on their scoreboards at uh, fields. You're going to see it on your mobile app when you're watching the game. The OPS has become a common denominator when uh, evaluating talent. And again, it's, not going to, it's another rudimentary way. Hey, America. <laughs> but it's another way to uh, talk about a player's worth. Last week, we talked about whip, which was walks, hits per inning. And now we've got OPS. So oh, I got to put on my specs. I'm going to read the definition again. You can go to Fangraphs.com and look these up. In the right-hand corner of Fangraphs, click on Glossary. It'll bring all of these down. So, Pitcher, pitcher like whip, no like OPS. No like OPS. Try to limit OPS. Yeah, yeah. But OPS is the sum of a player's on-base percentage and slugging percentage. So some like it, some don't. It gives you a limited look at, uh, at a guy's ability to go out there. But it has value as a metric because, you know, it's, it's accepted now more widely almost than batting average. And I kind of fell into the camp now that I've been broadcasting and talking about it and even trying to understand my career and how I created value for a team by not hitting 25 to 30 home runs a year and driving in 75 to 100 every year. Um, you know, my batting average wasn't that good. I was a career 250 guy, which isn't, you know, nothing to scoff at in the big leagues, but at the same time, I don't feel like you can really measure a guy's value by his pitching or by his uh, batting average. You know, you're going to have guys like a Joey Gallo who has a high OPS, but he hits 220 every single year, but he is still highly productive. You can have a guy like Jose Altuve who goes out there and hits 340 one year, but his on-base percentage is 350. So that tells you he's getting a ton of hits, but he's not getting a lot of walks. So is he really holding that much value? I think the most interesting one to me is a guy like Alex Bregman. He's a guy that's going to be 275 to 290, which is a very respectable batting average. But then you look at his on-base percentage, and this dude is up at 40%. He is getting on base at almost 40%. So you're going great. He gets a lot of hits. He gets a lot of walks. He gets on base. Now give me another way to evaluate how valuable this guy is to my team. Throw in slugging. And that's where you start to, uh, you know, start to give more value for a double, a triple, a home run. And then you can start to put the, the slugging, the power number, with the on-base number, which is batting average and walks, and you know, walks and uh, hit by pitches and marry those two things. And that's how you get OPS. So I hope that you are enjoying this tutelage under my Professor Blum hat and understanding that OPS is a very good number. You're going to see guys, you know, with – you know, a 350 on base percentage and then slugging 450 or above. So if a guy's at, you know, 800 or above, he is doing an extremely good job. And then we start to talk about guys like Jordan Alvarez, Alex Bregman, who are at 980, 990, Mike Trout's over a thousand OPS for his career. Those 
are the freaks. Those are the transcendent type guys that we keep talking about in this podcast who go above and beyond. But if you're going to try and find some value in a guy that gets on base and hits the ball hard, go to OPS. School's out. Thanks, Blummer. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, – obviously the slugging is really the impact piece that people miss out on, right? I mean, you can get on base yep. a lot with walks and singles, but it's the total bases that actually, you know – and you can think about it. I think about it like a layperson. It's not that I need to see your OPS or your slugging, but you mentioned Jordan Alvarez or Bregman or Trout. These guys – they smash the ball all over the place. Mm -hmm. So the harder and farther you hit the ball, the more bases you're going to rack up. So those, you know, line drives over the shortstop head aren't singles. They get to the wall, you know, or over the wall. So I think, uh, I think it's a valid stat. And as a pitcher, like I said, I was always trying to reduce that, but, uh, but you know who those guys are just by watching a game, you can tell who's, um, who's smashing the ball. Yeah, I think it's great, too, now that you can kind of marry the two together, because more often than not, you know, you go back and you say, uh, Rob Deere, dude hit a lot of home runs, but the guy struck out and never got on base. And then you have a guy who is very similar in this day and age is a guy like Joey Gallo, but Joey Gallo actually gets on base quite a bit and can take his walk. So there you can evaluate a guy and give somebody a little more value than maybe you could before. And uh, I just like that, you know, I like to have, I think every team would love to have a guy who is strong enough to hit the extra base hit and was patient enough and disciplined enough to take the walks to and not expand the zone. But uh, that's just a very good number for me to look at. And we will, this is all building too, because there's OPS pluses. There's some other analytics that we're going to break out, you know, whip leads to some other ones, but uh these are just some of the basics that I want the average everyday fan who may be fighting against the analytics saying, oh, okay, I can get that. I can understand that. And you'll watch that. I don't know how you feel about it, but, you know, obviously I have to watch the game. And being with the Astros, I had to start to understand the analytics a little bit. So now I'm starting to watch the game, you know, in combination of, of my player eye and my analytic eye and see how they kind of come together. So when I'm watching a whip guy, I can understand. I can look at my scorecard and go, man, he's keeping guys off base today. Oh, he's got a bunch of strikeouts. He's got some ground balls. And you start to go, okay, his whip is low today. That's why he's successful. Or you go, man, this guy's had a ton of traffic. No wonder he's thrown 75 pitches in three innings. You know, it actually helps you explain a lot. And if you have a guy like Alex Bregman that we get to watch consistently, you can say, man, the dude has three walks already today. He hasn't done much. Oh, but he's been on base three times, which has helped his team go out there and obviously increase their opportunity for win probability, which we might talk about a little bit later in some of these episodes. I love it. Thank you, Professor Blum. That's uh, super enlightening and super helpful, even to someone like myself. <laughs> yeah, we may have to change the name to uh, Professor Blum or maybe Skull Sessions or something like that. But that's going to do it for this episode of Bleacher Blums. I appreciate everybody who has checked in, tuned in, subscribed. Again, we are all over. We are on the podcast platforms. You can still find Bleacher Blums on Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeart, all that fun stuff. And we appreciate everybody who is still listening in. And I actually saw this month, five people have actually gone all the way back to episode one and started from the beginning. So we appreciate you. And of course, Social Nostra on YouTube is the channel you can go to to get 
Tuttle and I, more on your screen. I've seen a couple of screenshots of people who have actually had us on their 70-inch screen in the middle of the room as they're cleaning the house. So I greatly appreciate that. We'll give you a shout out, wave to you, say hello. Make sure you go to bleacherblums.com to check it out and make sure that you go to YouTube on Social Nostra. And that's going to do it for us. We want to say thank you to all the first responders, all the military, healthcare workers, all those essential workers who are keeping the country rolling through these tough times. Tuttle, parting words? No, shout out to the first responders. Hopefully uh, they took you up on your, uh, your uh, Metallica offer last time. But Yeah, let's get it done. Call me. Let's go. Let's, yeah, let's get it done. Um, we've had, this is the fourth day in a row where the, uh, the cases and the deaths have gone down. I think we're looking for two weeks. So we're at four days in a row, at least in California. I don't know if that's national. So let's get to two weeks, 11 more days. And, uh, and then we'll have some sort of light at the end of the tunnel to see our way back out into the real world. But uh, Blummer, Always a pleasure to be with you. Really enjoyed the podcast. I think we're starting to finally hit our groove, and uh, and it's cool to be on social Nostra. As I said before, maybe I'm have to shave <laughs> soon and comb the comb the palo, and you know, actually have to look right. We didn't always look like this on the podcast. You got a faux hawk going for sure, dude. Yeah, this thing's crazy. I'm gonna have to start messing around with this. Maybe shave my name in the side, like Blum over here, <laughs> King Tut over here. No, nothing but good times on this podcast. And of course, we appreciate everybody who's in the bleachers. Make sure you get out there, subscribe, rate, review, share. We love you. And of course, at the end of every Bleacher Blums, get after it. Most of all, believe it.